1: Welcome to the New Books and Christian Studies Podcast. I'm David Doyle, your host. When I was in seminary, I was assigned many theological tomes to read, and one was especially difficult to get through. It was The Systematic Theology by Charles Hodge. This work was dense, long, and I must confess wound up mostly unread. So when I came across Dr. Paul Guttger's biography of Hodge, I knew I had to find out why someone would write a biography about this man. It turns out there's much more to Hodge than I imagined. Dr. Gutjar is a professor of English at Indiana University, and the book, Charles Hodge, Guardian of American Orthodoxy, was published by the Oxford University Press in December of 2011. Well, Paul, why don't you take a a minute or so and and, uh, tell us who you are.
0: Okay, Uh, I am a professor of English at Indiana University, and I actually got hired here to do the history of publishing so i'm kind of a history of the book scholar i'm interested in issues of how print media has influenced the cultural various cultural formations how oral cultures differ from you know cultures that read and publish that's how um most of my research is actually focused around highly influential texts uh and so i've done a lot of work with kind of religious publishing, and that's actually my m- most concentrated area of expertise. So I've written a lot on Bible publishing and publishing by Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Scientologists and people that put out sacred texts and how sacred texts um, influence people's lives. Uh, the other thing I do a lot is uh, I'm an early Americanist, so I teach things here at Indiana uh, before the civil war so if you're in one of my classes we do kind of standards like moby dick and scarlet letter and cotton mather things that people really don't don't really love studying they, they probably wake up years later kind of in having night sweats and thinking "Boy, i really didn't like that english course in, in college.
1: I've done that but, with a Magnolia. I, I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what I do. Okay. So we're, we're talking primarily about your book, Charles Hodge, The Guardian of American Orthodoxy. And I really want to start by asking how'd you come to pick Hodge?
0: Great question. Um, I actually. I had just finished a book on American Bible publishing, and I had gotten a fellowship at Princeton to uh do kind of a part two of that project. I had taken Bible publishing up until, you know, about the 1880s, and I was interested in taking it all the way into the 20th, 21st centuries. And I got to Princeton for that fellowship year and i kind of lost steam i kind of one of the things is i had so many interviews about bible publishing that year and so many talk shows and so many requests for different kinds of encyclopedia entries and articles and i kind of began thinking to myself i really don't want to be the bible guy you know the rest of my career uh not that i don't kind of enjoy writing about it and thinking about it but i wanted to kind of i don't know branch out or test myself in a new way and I remember thinking, okay, I'm at a point where I've kind of completed my first book. Uh, I'll probably get tenure. What do I want to do now? And the thing that I really wanted to do was try a new genre, try something that was just not a, a typical academic monograph. And as I kind of kept thinking about it, I thought, what I really want to do is a biography. I mean, I like reading them. Uh, they're a different kind of book to write. They're a different kind of book to research. And so I thought to myself, okay, let me think about who I might want to write a biography of. And I had certain kinds of, I don't know, restrictions, you might call them, things that I wanted to make sure that I was careful about in this book. And one of them was I wanted all the source material to be kind of obtainable and in a a place that was kind of centralized and accessible because the Bible book and other things I'd worked on had sent me all over the country. I didn't want to have to go to California and Texas and New Mexico and Florida for my next project. I wanted a central archive. So that was one of the things I was thinking about. I also wanted a biography that dealt with somebody that uh, was deeply involved in print culture, somebody that had really kind of uh, used print Uh, to influence others and my first choice actually for the biography was noah webster i thought that would be a really interesting person to do he's very involved politically and he was somebody that had a great sense of you know how to use print and he uh did an early American speller, which went gangbusters and actually financed basically the rest of his life. Uh, And then he decides to do a dictionary, uh, the Webster Dictionary. And then after that, he decides to to do his own translation of the Bible. And here's a guy that really kind of thought about the big pieces of American print culture, you know, basic spelling, basic reading skills, all the way to you know what's the most important book we have the bible so i'm I'm going to make that accessible for americans and i thought that'd be a really interesting character to do and a lot of his papers are at yale so it was a centralized archive and then i found out that three other people were working on noah webster and i thought okay maybe not noah (laughs) (laughs) and and, at a certain point i um uh, was over at the Princeton Theological Seminary uh, Special Collections. And I was researching something for another article. And I met the head of the collections that day. And I just I asked him what I ask every kind of special collection librarian that I meet. Do you have any papers that haven't been worked on a lot? Uh, any collections that you find particularly interesting? Uh, that are kind of underutilized. And I asked this because of my graduate students. I'm always kind of thinking, you know, if I find something interesting, I can always pass it on mm-hmm. as an idea to those I'm working with. And, uh, and he had a lot of ideas about what was underutilized in that, in that library. I mean, that place is a treasure trove. Um, but it brought us around to Hodge and, uh, one of the things that had always always struck me about Hodge, you know, I had read Hodge earlier and knew about him, was that there wasn't a modern biography of him. Uh, the only biography was by his son, two years after his death, which is kind of interesting because when he when he was in play at Princeton, he uh, was an incredibly famous and influential Presbyterian. But then he kind of drops off the map, and so at that point I thought, well. Maybe Hodge. And so I started to look at his uh, his papers there. And he's, tr- he's treated like a saint at Princeton. I mean, when they collected everything, uh, all of his papers. They wrote to the other side of his correspondence and wanted, you know, the letters that he had sent to them. So uh, they had collected both sides of a lot of correspondence. They uh, had, you know, student notes from a lot of his students. They had, you know... They'd solicited those. When he died, they took pictures of his of his study, all four walls. You know, this is exactly what the study looked like when he died. Uh, this, you know, they had a very, were very historically minded with Hodge, so there was a lot of material. And I thought, this, you know, this might be the my moment and the guide. So I decided to read letters uh, because I also thought, you know. will I like this guy Mm -hmm. uh, was another question I had (laughs) and at the end of the day the thing that kind of tipped the balance was uh, I started to read his correspondence to his brother and he writes his brother basically you know his entire life you know almost weekly Uh, and uh, Hodge just had a tremendous sense of humor I mean he was you know he's a good writer but uh, he also had the ability to kind of Take himself lightly, and uh, I ended up really just liking the guy. And so it was at that moment I thought, you know, maybe this will this will be the person that I would do the biography on. The one thing I didn't consider, uh, and I would if I ever—I don't think I'll ever do another biography, but if I did, I would pick somebody that died a lot younger. <laughs> this guy, this guy—you know—he's he's living into his eighties. And he's writing his major, major works uh, up until the day he dies, practically. You know, his his systematic comes out just a few years before he dies. And that's, you know, 3,000 pages. And I'm like, most people are like running their victory lap at that point in their life, you know, sitting at parties and kind of talking about old times. But Hodge is is there scribbling away. I'm just really glad he didn't have a word processor or we would be... be. Well, maybe he would have cut and pasted a little. and you could have. I, well, I doubt it. <laughs> you know, what he did is systematic theology, this is what I thought, you know. You're going to do your systematic theology at the end of your life. Why don't you cut and paste just some of your earlier stuff from, uh, you know, all these articles you've written in the repertory and all the, from your commentaries and your lecture notes. But he sits down and he writes this thing like, He's creating it from whole cloth. Mm. He, he, you know, he wants it to be, you know, his major contribution, and he wants it to flow. He wants it to, you know, he doesn't want it to be kind of herky-jerky. You know, I said this in 1842, and then I said this in 1869. Right. And uh, so anyway, if he had a word processor, we'd be <laughs> even deeper into the, the dust of like archival material.
1: Well, it's interesting you mentioned that you came to like Hodge, because I found that uh, even though I had read a fair amount of his theology, I didn't know much about him as a person, and your biography actually caused me to like him quite a bit, too, and especially the way he treated his family. Um, Can you talk a little bit about uh, the family and, and Hodge and how you came to appreciate that?
0: Right. I mean, one of the things, you know, I spent 10 years on this project, and Uh, it's not a fact I'm particularly proud of because I always thought, you know, it wouldn't take that long. It kept taking longer and longer, but you become really self-reflective around year eight or nine in a project like this. And you kind of think, okay, will I ever finish? And if I finish, will anybody ever read it? And even if like five or six people actually do pick it up, uh, you know, was it worth it? Uh, and, uh, one of the things that kind of I started to think about in those later years is I got to stop thinking about this project in terms of, of you know, what, its contribution to, you know, knowledge in general. I, I, I need to think about this project in terms of what has it done for me. Mm. Uh, and uh, and that was an interesting moment for me because I, I think it was at that point that I really started to kind of think through how it should become in a certain way a a historical mentor for me. Uh, not that I agreed with everything that he ever said or did, but when you spend that much time with somebody and you're locked in a room and it's just kind of you and a dead guy and his letters, um, it it really does start to seep into you in certain different kinds of ways. And, uh, I found myself thinking sometimes even in my own life experience, like, you know, I wonder what Hodge would think about this. (laughs) And, uh, one of the, and to answer your question one of the things that uh, out of you know that reflection of kind of what has this project done for me uh i was i was really uh impacted by uh Hodge's relationship with his family his immediate family he has eight kids and uh he's married twice he has two good marriages okay his first wife dies of of a cancer uh remarries a couple of years later, has a second really good marriage. And, you know, depending on how you count seven and a half or eight of his kids turn out incredibly well. And, uh, and I have a couple of kids of my own and it, it was, kind of, I was thinking, okay, eight kids. And, and they seem to gr- grow up to be really kind of well adjusted, you know, people that other people want to be around, be influenced by, be friends with. And, uh, So I started to kind of think through, okay, what is you know, you know, aside from kind of his Christian principles, you know, what was Hodge all about in his parenting? So in that you know eighth and ninth year, I thought a lot about kind of his family dynamics, and one of the things that really struck me at the end of the day was the way in which uh, he was very committed with each of his kids to uh, uh, take them as individuals and try to enter their worlds you know even though they're his kids they're all kind of different and they all have different interests and when they would show an interest hodge would um climb on board and i think it, it, early on for me parenting was a little bit like now bring the kids along to do what i want to do you know i want to go to a baseball game i'm going to bring them along and they're going to like it um hodge kind of did an inverse of that he uh they got interested in something and then he got interested in it to be with them. And so like Archibald Alexander, his oldest son loved animals. And so when, uh, when he wanted rabbits, Hodge got him rabbits and then they got a dog. And then, you know, and Hodge got really involved in raising rabbits and walking the dog. And his third son, Casper, um, wanted to learn to play the violin. And so Hodge, got him a violin and then learned to play it himself and got really interested in music out of that. And they would sit in his study and they would play together. Uh, His daughter, his eldest daughter, wanted to learn Latin. And so uh, Hodge taught her and um, spent long, you know, long periods of time just kind of sitting and reading Latin with her. And It was, you know, it was those kind of moments that I think paid rich dividends for him. He's close to, you know, close to his kids his entire life and uh, their entire lives. And uh, you just you read the correspondence, you get a sense from kind of stuff that they wrote later in life that being in that household was really a blessing for them. And uh, it was really fun. And a lot of them. Kind of, in looking back, thought of that time as some of the best of their lives. And I'm thinking, I wish my kids could, you know, mm-hmm. when they grow up, they look back and think, boy, I really I enjoyed growing up in that household. I, you know, I, I enjoyed what that brought to me.
1: Yeah, and how many kids would choose to follow their father's footsteps as his son took over from him at Princeton?
0: Right. You know, he has, you know, his two sons become professors. And then, you know, Hodge early on wanted to become a doctor. And, uh, you know, when he has his conversion experience, decides to go into the ministry. But, you know, he has sons that become, you know, medical doctors, too. So, you know, his interest in science also influences, you know, a lot of his kids.
1: Mm-hmm. So Another thing that um, quite struck me is reading the book, um, and especially I'm sort of a... Um, a non-professional historian, although I've ch- loved church history for most of my ministry, was Hodge's relationship to defending the Catholic Church.
0: Yeah, that's that's really an interesting little moment for him because uh, he takes a tremendous amount of heat for uh, for his stand on Catholicism. And for Hodge, Hodge is deeply, deeply... Uh, Historical in a certain sense, he uh, has this high high view of you know the creedal tradition, you know confessional statements you know the history of the church in general, and you know a lot of his own thinking and a lot of his own exegesis is really heavily inflected by you know his views of the Westminster catechism mm-hmm. and and those kind of things and Uh, And I think Catholicism works into that in a certain way because, you know, before there was a Protestant church, obviously there's this Catholic church, and that that tradition is not only rich, but really important. And so there's a moment where the Presbyterians in America want to disavow Catholic baptism, uh, saying, you know, it's not valid. And Hodge, you know, the historical part of Hodge, just looks at that and says, you know, we can't do that. I mean, that's, that's basically taking, you know, some of the most important players in the Christian tradition out of play. You know, you can't take Luther and the patristic fathers and everybody and say, you know, they weren't, they weren't, you know, they weren't baptized. Uh, And so, you know, he stands against that. And he, in in a typical Hadjian fashion, writes long articles about, uh, you know, what true baptism is that, you know, Catholics maybe aren't a perfect church, but they, they have the big pieces right you know, on baptism. And we can't, you know, we can't just wipe the slate clean and say, you know, it's only the Protestants that have, you know, cornered the baptism. Uh, and
1: it sacrament. seems like that cost him a lot.
0: It does cost him a lot. You know, um, it's it's an interesting move because he, you know, he defends that very vigorously. And then, the, then for the next 10 years, uh, you know, he's, at that point, he's, He's established at Princeton, and the repertory, his, you know, his journal is very important among Presbyterians, but there's a lot of backlash against, uh, uh, against his stance and, you know, the repertory circulation dips for a little bit. And he spends the next 10 years trying to re-explain and refine his, uh, his position, saying, you know, okay, I, d- I don't want you to think that I'm too Catholic I'm just saying that, you know, there are certain things in this tradition we really have to pay attention to and respect and learn from. And so he tries to walk this tightrope. But, you know, anti Catholicism in the United States is a long and very, not only violent, but powerful tradition. Uh, And, uh,. He, he came up against that. I mean, people do not like Catholics in the 19th century, um, or a lot of people do not. And he's, you know, in a very visceral way, And he's kind of standing against that on principle. And it did. It cost him a lot, and it made him write a lot of future articles on the nature of the church that,
1: uh, yeah, that, tried, Br- that Br- tries to walk out. Did he, did he find, historically, that anybody else came to his side in his... Um the deduction that Catholicism was part of Christianity or did he pretty much stand alone there?
0: You know there there were definitely people that were standing with him Not, but the problem is um, they tended to be of a higher church uh, bent you know Episcopalians for instance mm-hmm. they're, they're with Hodge on this right um, Mercersburg and that theology later on they'll be with Hodge on some of this um the problem, though, is Hodge. You know, in true Presbyterian fashion, you know, the reason he's a Presbyterian is because he believes that is the best, you know, truest manifestation of the church—not uh, the only one, but the one that you know has the most things right. And so, what he wants is the affirmation of fellow Presbyterians, and he doesn't get that. Uh, you know, there are a few, there are a handful of Presbyterians that side with him on this, but. um uh, uh, even the ones that are sympathetic to his stance will not be saying it very loudly mm-hmm. and certainly not putting it in print. So,
1: But uh, as you, you mentioned, this really helps him to clarify his understanding of the church. It
0: does. Um, it, but, you know, in general, throughout the 1850s, everybody seems to be in a little bit of crisis about what exactly is the true church. So Hodge isn't alone in that, but he's joining a, a pretty big dialogue that, often catalyzed by Catholicism, you know, if the Catholics don't have it right, who does have it right? Um, and there's a lot of competition among different denominations, you know, in mid-19th century. So you have the Methodists, you have Baptists, you have, you know, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, you have the Disciples of Christ, all these people are now in the American religious public sphere, and they're trying to say to each other, you know, this is what makes us distinctive, And this is why you should listen to us rather than others. And, you know, Hodge, you know, joins that conversation. Uh, He joins it in the repertory and he joins it through his lectures. Uh, You know, this is, Presbyterians are right because dot, dot, dot. So, uh, but similar, you know, similar arguments will be made by, you know, the Methodists, you know, Baptists, Mm -hmm. Episcopalians, some a very vibrant dialogue. The dialogue that I don't think—I mean—would shock us today, because we just don't have that level of theological discourse uh, in, in the public sphere, I think, anymore. But you know, this was this was hot and heavy, long articles, really thoughtful stuff in a lot of different publications. And you're thinking, wow, these guys really not only knew how to write, but knew how to, you know, argue interesting positions.
1: One of the things that I think Hodge does is he seems to be able to hold a position really strongly yet not go after a, an ad hominem attack on his opponents. Right.
0: You know, (laughs) even the people that uh, disagreed with him uh, appreciated his ability to argue on, on principle and not on personality. Uh, It, what what you do find in his letters, you don't find this a lot in his published writings. You know, there are people that he likes more and he likes less, but he uh, he's pretty careful uh, to not take public stands. I mean, he's in that way, he's really kind of a true Christian gentleman mm-hmm. in that in that time period. He's he he will not you know go after personalities uh, for the most part. So.
1: Well, one of the notes I made in my own writing is wondering if Hodge became bitter, um, as he seems to be the at some points the, the only guardian of reformed orthodoxy, and yet I don't see any any bitterness or um, or pain in that. What do you think about that?
0: That's a that's a that is a great question. Um, I would say I mean, my my immediate response to that is uh, Hodge's personality is is such that. Uh, you know, some people really have kind of a, a proclivity toward uh, bitterness. You know, that's kind of how they're bent. Hodge was an incurable optimist. I mean, here here's a guy that just, you know, the glass is always half full. And I think that, that drives him and fuels him and actually inspires others around him through, you know, difficult times to kind of think, you know, God is good. God will God has a plan in this. Um, the other thing I would say, though, is he's able, he lives at Princeton almost his entire life, except for a couple of years when he's in Germany. And that's a pretty insulated place, and that's a pretty Presbyterian place. And I'm, I kind of wonder if that, if there is a kind of bubble that he lives in that uh, he's around a lot of like-minded people that can support his views okay
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so why the rest of, <laughs> the rest of the nation might not be like into reformed orthodoxy Princeton is and so he's around like-minded people and I think they kind of buttress each other and uh, they may they may think they have more influence than they actually do well, I mean I'm, the, the, who knows what they but they you know that's a happy little band. Of guys that are uh, very committed to a certain vision of Christianity, and they are—that's
1: a good point. Uh, I hadn't thought of that. but That's a good point. So, um, a couple of other issues. Um, we have to touch the slavery issue. Okay. And uh, just kind of, you have some thoughts on that?
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. I, <clears throat> that was it. That's an interesting thing. Uh, you know when I talk about kind of historically being mentored by Hodge, I think mentors in our life let 's not even do historical ones. We all have people that we 've kind of looked up to, you know whether they be sports coaches or teachers or parents or whatever. the thing that 's really interesting about mentors though is you've you 've also got to remember I think that they 're human, and uh, not everything about them is going to be good. you know you can like ninety percent, but there 's always going to be something uh, and with hodge. Uh, it was slavery for me. Um, mm-hmm. I I got to be honest. Um, this, I was writing the chapter on slavery, trying to get the position his position on slavery right in my mind, and uh, I literally have twenty three drafts of the chapter on slavery. Wow! Uh, you know that of all the chapters in the book, and some of them were really quite difficult, and I had to come back several times. But several times, you know, because I was looking at this as I was boxing up all my notes after the book was done, I had like, you know, I had 10 or 11 drafts on some of the other difficult chapters. Uh, And sometimes I'd only have five or six. On, On most chapters, I'd have five or six. But on slavery, I had a whole box of, you know, Early renditions, middle renditions, revisions of the earlier ones, you know, and because I found not so much that I didn't understand his position as I was trying to make sense of it in my own, uh, you know, how, how can you, how could you hold this and, uh, And what just became clear to me was not only is he a product of his time, I mean, we all like to think that we were abolitionists, you know, in 1860, but very few Americans are actually radical abolitionists at the beginning of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, a very, very small percentage. Hodge, you know, is much more mainstream uh, than, you know, we kind of have this historical hindsight of all being against slavery. Hodge is kind of middle of the road. Uh, he's into gradual emancipation, but he's not into radical emancipation. And for him, and this is the piece that I thought was most important as I started to come around to it. It was not only a theological position, you know, Jesus never spoke against uh, slavery. Paul doesn't, uh, when they do speak about it, they speak about kind of the institution and how it should be governed, all that kind of stuff. For, you know, for Hodge, Uh, the other big piece was property rights. I think he, you know, he came from a very property background that lost everything in the War of 1812, and he grows up poor, but he wants to be, you know, he's still moving in circles that are very socially, uh, very high social circles, but he's poor, and he's always worried about kind of how he looks, his poor clothes, all these kind of things, uh, as he's growing up. And so I think when you start talking about property rights for him it, it goes deep and he's thinking about you know what does it mean to take people's property away uh, and so even though we bristle at this whole notion that people aren't you know things are not property I think that somehow inflected Hodge's thinking um, and he was he's, you know he struggled with that uh, and uh, I don't think he ever reached a place you know of yeah that I wish he would have reached, right? You know, that he became a radical abolitionist and, Mm -hmm. you know, denounced slavery.
1: (laughs) It was almost that because the Bible doesn't mention anti-slavery, he just lets it go.
0: He lets it go because he's so concerned that, you know, once you start uh, making stuff up, uh, you know, and saying that Jesus said this or that, or Paul said this or that, and it's not there. Uh, This is his big problem with Finney, for instance, you know. Charles Finney's always kind of taken things too far, and, uh, you know, when Finney ultimately starts to believe in perfectionism, that humans can become perfect, you know, Hodge sees that as like, you know, a a nugget that you find in certain kinds of New Testament passages taken to a, a wild extreme, and uh, and he doesn't want to see that with any issue any doctrinal issue and and he doesn't want to see it with slavery Kind of says you know uh, when he first writes on slavery in 1836 he writes to his brother and says I read everything I could uh, on on the slavery issue and I read through the entire New Testament again because I really didn't have a stance on this and I was trying to figure it out and his his basic stance that he holds for the next, you know, the rest of his life is, you know, Jesus doesn't speak a bit against it and Paul doesn't speak against it, so how can I? Mm. Uh, so there, there's a simplicity to that stance that, that many disagree with, but he held it.
1: Well, I think part of the, you know, that comes back to your, your statement about being in an isolated culture. And Do you think he ever really caught on um, to, to how the country was feeling about it? You know, I think eventually he
0: catches on during the Civil War. He certainly, you know, he reads voluminously a lot of different newspapers. But um, he, he his view of slavery, I think, is uh, is New Jersey small Hamlet slavery. Mm-hmm. I mean, he owns a couple of slaves early on. Um, but, you know, he sends his slaves um, to church and, he, you know, it gives them educational opportunities. This is not plantation slavery of Louisiana, Mississippi, you know, Alabama, or, And I just don't think he really has a sense of, you know, what he sees is almost a gente, gent, genteel slavery. You know, these people need our help. We can feed them and help them and raise them up and eventually they'll, they'll take their place in society. He's not looking at, you know, Simon Legree slavery where people are being worked to death, living in hovels, um, you know, raped regularly by, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, whites around them. It's just, uh, so I think in that sense, he's not very in touch uh, with what's happening in different parts of the country.
1: It seems kind of strange to me. Somebody who's in touch with so many areas uh, was out of touch there, but I'm sure that's our own culture feeding back on it.
0: Well, you know, and I actually, as with all things, Hodge, I could be wrong. So, I mean, (laughs) maybe he was turning a blind eye, and uh, which might have quite possibly been part of it. Mm -hmm. You know that you know we kind of see what we want to see.
1: Um, two things I'd like to do before we close this part of the interview one is I want to talk a little bit about Hodge's character um, okay you, you mentioned um, on, in one point in the book that his his greatest gift is his utter consistency of conviction um, can we talk a little bit about that and then about what you see as his personal piety and how that worked itself out okay so start with consistency of conviction mm, please okay
0: Uh when you're writing a biography, this is another thing I learned. I learned a lot about writing a biography and writing this biography. Um, you want people that have radical changes, okay? Because it makes it for a really interesting narrative. Uh, and so when I'm, like, reading other biographies, I'm always kind of, like, thinking, wow, it's so great that, you know, if you read about Theodore Parker, for instance, you know, on his trip to Unitarianism and beyond, or... Or Mao or, you know, all these people, they have various different kinds of conversion moments. And they're thinking, they're thinking changes and evolves. And that makes for a really good story. And then I got into Hodge. Okay, here's a guy who, uh, it, in atypical biographical fashion, basically moves from point A to point A. Yeah. Rather than point A to point B, you know, and so he's not that kind of narrative figure that you really are engaged by. In fact, you know, he lives in the same place and virtually the same house his entire life. Okay, And then when he does go to Germany for two years to study, he comes back utterly convinced that he was right in his positions. Okay. hmm the positions that he held before he went. So you could, you you know, he does change when he's in Germany and and some important things happen, but there's also kind of a through line there. And I'm thinking, boy, this this is not your typical biographical subject. He's not like an admiral or an explorer where you can kind of go from, you know, to different countries and be on different ships and have different crews. And I mean, here's a guy that's just like he 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 literally shops at the same clothing store his entire adult life you know the, the clothing store changes hands but he stays with that you know and um i think the consistency of conviction apps kind of on two different levels it, it temperamentally that's the way he was i mean he did not like change uh, he gets a he gets a chair from his brother for a birthday and then he sits for the next four decades in that chair writing uh, and he, you know just a few days before he dies he ruminates on you know his inability to sit in that chair anymore and uh, he's he's going to miss that chair and uh, you know and that becomes kind of metaphorical for positions that um, you know. In 1823, he writes; he begins writing his lectures on Romans. You read those lectures, lectures on Romans, and they they differ very, very little from what he's giving uh, almost 50 years later. Uh, but, you know, there are there are changes, there are some updates, but here's a guy that can hold a position, um, and so for me, the really interesting question is, you know, we're always enamored by change. I think that's maybe American or something, you know, and that we like to see that kind of evolution. Uh, what Hodge offers is is an example of somebody who doesn't change that much. And, uh, and that in itself should be kind of an interesting, and I, and I did try to make it interesting in the book. Uh, you know, what does it mean to have somebody that really does keep the through line? Um, uh, while the while the rest of the world is changing around him uh, and uh so I think temperamentally it's that what you know he's he's well suited for that but here's a guy that uh holds some fundamental positions uh doctrinal positions uh with a kind of passion that I, you know i find admirable and I'll just pick one uh here's a guy that um has, oh, this is a term we don't use a lot anymore, but Hodge loved this term providence. Uh, but, um, we're, we're, I think a lot of modern day Christians would say, you know, God is good. Um, you know, Hodge not only said that, I think he utterly, utterly believed it. Uh, that in the worst moments of his life, when his wife dies, when, you know, he loses his wife and nephew, his You know, his two closest mentors all within about 18 months of each other, an incredibly hard time for him. Um, And yet, even through that really hard time, uh, what he is looking for is the hand of God. I mean, he's really, you know, he has a really high view of providence. And uh, and throughout his entire life, I think that kind of fundamental plumb line of the goodness of God keeps him centered in a way that is... Utterly compelling to me. I mean, here's a guy that, um, you know, through good, bad, through, uh, you know, over over distance of time, is able to kind of say, you know, I believe this, I believe this, and this is this affects the way that I live. Uh, and, you know, I'm 50 years old now, and I find myself changing all the time. You know, on my stances, on my views, and I'm like. Uh, it just makes me marvel all the more that Hodge can kind of, you know, hold a position and hold it pretty consistently. Uh,
1: but one of the things I got from your book was that this holding a position consistently over time doesn't seem to harden him. He seems to, to be, I don't want to say soft because that's not what I mean, but, but, but gentle and when when I was reading the the last couple chapters uh, and especially the reflections um at his funeral and in there beyond, more people spoke about his Christian character than they did about his erudition, as it were
0: right, and I think that that is the thing that I think people have totally lost in kind of when you when you encounter Hodge now, you encounter him in very small snippets and kind of the church history textbooks or you know if you're taking systematic theology sometimes they'll pull out hodge as kind of the beginning point of american systematics and i'm not saying it is but i'm saying you know
1: no i agree with you agree with
0: you know you that people will know him and if you read those things you don't really get a sense for the man uh for for hodge you know here's a guy that um uh, that's a, it's a great word that you used. I think he's incredibly gentle in spirit. Uh, he, he was somebody that uh, was at his best. Every Sunday afternoon at Princeton, they would have kind of talks, uh, you know, Sunday afternoon talks, meditations for the students. Hodge gave, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of these throughout his life. And uh, if you read those notes, um, you get a different kind of systematic uh, and those, you know, they have all those at <laughs> Princeton in the archives. You read through those, and here's a guy uh, that is utterly committed to making the Christian faith practical for his students. And you, you kind of see him, I think, at his best in those, in those little talks. Because um, it's, you know, it's not only about high theology. It's about uh, what is this going to mean in the pastorate? And what is this going to mean in your own life? And that's where I think the piety piece comes in. Uh, uh, You know, it's absolutely clear to me that, um, that Hodge had a very deep personal relationship with his God, that uh, he, uh, um, you know, felt an intimacy there that he, that he could communicate to others. And he certainly communicated it to his family. I mean, there was, there is a sense there that uh, everybody thought Jesus was at the dinner table with them every night. I mean, that there was, a, you know, it was just so much a part of the warp and woof, not only of his parenting and his family life, but of his teaching. So he, you know, there is. There's a gentleness behind you kind know, of the rhetoric that we. If you just know his writings, his most famous published writings. You're going to see him more as a systematician, mm. you know, and a, and a rhetoric guy, yeah, that's not what so to me.
1: I learned of Hodge through a systematics, and basically picked up your book because I wanted to know if there was anything behind this guy because he didn't strike me as a a particularly noteworthy figure. And I'm I'm really glad I spent the time with your biography, and glad you spent the ten years with him. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: well. Yeah. At the end, I have to say. Uh, but it was it was kind of bittersweet when the, you know I finally sent the manuscript off. I remember having dinner with my family, and everybody was a little bit shell shocked that it was finally over because you know, when you every you know my sons had grown up with you know a lot of dinner conversations about Hodge and how it was going and what I was learning, and uh, you know I can remember sitting at that dinner with them, and everybody was kind of like, "Wow, we're not going to be doing this
1: and anymore." Now what do we talk about? <laughs> yeah. <You
0: know? laughs> That Dad, Dad's cruel obsession. His his, mo, his his Moby Dick.
1: Is now. Uh, and you inflicted it on the dog.
0: I read. Yes. Yes, that was my uh, that was my one concession to owning a dog, if I can name it Hodge. <laughs> yeah. So that was quite cool.
1: I also have to mention um i don 't know if you want to spend any time on this, but your your final chapter the epilogue on bringing hodge forward was was really good um i hadn 't made hardly any of those connections myself, uh, and so I really appreciated that i 'm um, glad to find that Hodge still uh, applies and affects us today
0: well i really uh, you know I really do think he does and i you know there 's another biography a, a really good biography that came out on hodge uh, just a few months after mine. It really pushes the piety piece um, of his life. And I I think he does have, you know, Hodge has influenced both as kind of a a, a thinker about certain issues uh, like, you know, biblical inerrancy or whatever, mm-hmm. but also, you know, as kind of a, a man of piety, a, a person with kind of a, a deep central kind of value on prayer and, uh, the mystery of the faith, those kind of things.
1: Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts on Hodge?
0: You know, um, I guess the last thing, I don't know if people are going to pick up the book or not, but um, I should mention that as, it, as an English professor, I thought a lot about presentation in this book. And uh, I I opted for really short chapters. There's like 57 really short chapters, uh, four- or five-page chapters, and I'd never seen a biography done like that before. There probably are biographies out there, but for me, it was a matter of – I was also trying to think about the reading experience. There's a guy that holds the same position his entire life. You know, how do you give some momentum to the narrative? How do you, you know, how do you keep people reading? And my, my choice on that was give them short chapters so that they don't have to read a lot to feel like they've accomplished something. You know, that they can go like, wow. Okay. Now now I know about his Romans commentary or, you know, his, his, know his, his view on, you know, whatever it might be, Catholicism. And uh, if there was one thing that I was kind of really pleased with, uh, it was the ability to have Oxford Press actually buy into that. Because, they, you know, there was a tendency to want just like 12 long chapters. And I think 12 long chapters would have would have given people a different reading experience
1: well i can echo that my own experience reading the book is it took me a couple of months um because i could take a small bit and then think about it and process it and then when other things came on it wasn't like i had to go back and find myself again so i think it worked very well
0: well and the other thing you know i really fought for this was you know at the beginning of the book there are these little uh pictures of all the major characters uh there's a little kind of gallery of key figures mm-hmm. and there's a little biographical two, one or two sentence thing. And I really fought with the publisher about that because they didn't want to do that. But, um, again, I was really pleased with that because I, when I read biographies, I want, I want to know who the characters are and I want timelines because I'm often kind of, I get confused because I don't read it all at one sitting. Mm. And, uh, and so I got a, a children's illustrator, to you know, and I sent him the pictures of all these old guys, all these old 19th century guys, some women, and he did pencil sketches of them all. And again, um, uh, when I look at the book, I think, I'm really glad that I actually made it in. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, I, j- just because I enjoy them. Uh, again, so I guess maybe one of the things for me is uh, at the end of the day, I really enjoyed this project. It uh, took 10 years, but, uh, you know, I just had a lot of fun with it, all the way from kind of thinking about Hodge to how to present Hodge.
1: Well, I think it shows because it's one of the best written biographies I've ever read, and I really need, think you, uh, you deserve kudos for that. Well, thank you. So, which leads me to the, to the last question for you. What's next? Okay.
0: Uh, took me ten, 10 years to finish Hodge. At the end of Hodge, while I was doing the page proofs, so I got asked to do a book on the Book of Mormon, uh, a biography of the Book of Mormon. And, and so the year and a half that I was working through kind of all the galleys and stuff of Hodge, I wrote another book that came out just a few months ago on the Book of Mormon. And so, and that's a biography of the book. Mm-hmm. So that takes the Book of Mormon from 1830 to the present. I end with the uh, mm-hmm. the Book of Mormon, the musical, on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, you know, was a, a different kind of publishing project. Um, but the thing that I'm working on now, and I'm I'm excited about this one, but this is another I think going to be a longer term project. Uh, how American religious traditions have dealt with the possibility of life on other planets. Really? I, I, I'm interested in, in I, you know, this is, some of it is, you know, people mostly think of that as kind of like Scientology and stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm interested, you know, I'm interested in Scientology, but I'm also interested in how, um, you know, um, American, you know, particularly Christians have, have, dealt theologically with the possibility of life on other planets. I mean, the Mormons have a very sophisticated notion of, you know, all the planets are inhabited, and you know, with their eternal progression, you get your own planet. But the Seventh-day Adventists have, you know, views on, you know, people on other planets, and so I'm interested in kind of, you know, what Methodists and Presbyterians and others have thought about this issue of what, what does it mean if we're not alone, and so, yeah, wow. and uh so that's my next. I'm calling it my UFO theology project. Mm-hmm. So,
1: so yeah. You know, hopefully, though, it'll we'll be out before uh, 2022. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I I kind of doubt it. The way that I kind of been moving these days, I'm, this might be my last. <laughs> oh, sounds very good. <laughs> so.
1: Well, thank you so much for speaking with us about Charles Hodge. I've really enjoyed it and enjoyed the book as well.
0: Well, thank you so much for asking to do this. I mean, it's, it's fun to talk about Hodge. Good.
1: Good. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And thank you for listening to this podcast from the New Books and Christian Studies Network. I'm David Dole, your host. Good day.